This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. I want to talk about this phrase, Christian nationalism. Now, I brought this up a couple of days ago. You might have seen that Bible teacher Beth Moore was out on Twitter a few days ago, and I mentioned this earlier this week. And she was tweeting about this Jericho march, which took place in Washington. And it was basically a hodgepodge of people who wanted to you know, protest what's going on with the election and stand with President Trump and all the rest. And she wrote in part, I'm 63 and a half years old and I have never seen anything in these United States of America I found more astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. Okay, what's Trumpism? Who knows? She goes on to say this Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. Okay. And a lot of people read that and said, what are you talking about? What's Trumpism? What is Christian nationalism? What is that exactly? Uh, And we're still kind of wondering because there have been a number of others who have said things like this. The big Eva types, you know, you had Beth Moore, you had David French, you had Michael Gerson, you had Rod Dreher, a number of people weighing in, even the Gospel Coalition, I think, had some stuff on this, talking about, oh, the dangers of putting Trump in the place of God and this is idolatry. They're always doing this hyperbolic freaking out. They've been doing this for the last X number of years. It gets tiresome. But I am very intrigued by this term, Christian nationalism. Are you talking about KKK members? Because I don't know anybody who's a Bible-believing Christian who's a member of the KKK. And I don't know if they're referring to theonomy, theonomy, the idea that we should live under Old Testament law. There's some theonomists hanging around, but not a lot. So I would not say the average Christian who's a Bible-believing Christian and goes to church is a theonomist. So what do they mean by this? And I've been troubled by this. Here's an example of this. It's an author over at Religion News Service by the name of Anthea Butler, who is an associate professor of religion and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And this is what she said. She said Moore and David French and Michael Gerson and other evangelical writers have been wringing their hands for years about evangelicals and Trump. They have made a cottage industry of the I'm shocked genre of commentary. This group is quick to proclaim they're upset every time an evangelical pastor or political leader widely supported by evangelicals acts up in the name of Trumpism. And she says this performance of piety in the face of evil is empty because it does not deal with a core issue white evangelicalism's own racism. Are we back to that again? Complain as they might about Trump, this president simply tapped into the racist ID that has always been a foundation of American evangelicalism. Now that white mobs are marching and inciting violence, they export the racism and violence to a specter called Christian nationalism. I I don't see this as helpful. I also don't see it as true. Uh, I don't support violence whatsoever, and I don't support any sort of, you know, attacking of property or anything like that. But can't you just have people who happen to have white skin loving their country? Or is that evil now? 
or, or black people or Asian people or people of any kind of race or ethnicity. I'm sure there were people from all sorts of backgrounds who attended the Jericho March. I wasn't one of them. But there are a lot of people in this country, about 74 million, who voted for President Trump. And I don't think they were all white Christian nationalists. So I'm asking myself this question. Why is this suddenly becoming a thing? This Christian nationalism stuff. And what are they really trying to say about it? So as I'm poking around looking for information on this, I come across this website, ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Now, this was apparently something that was launched last year, and it was launched by the Baptist Joint Committee along with a number of people who were early endorsers, the Marxist Jim Wallace of Sojourners and Tony Campolo and like the usual crowd, the guy who married Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, he's on there too. So you have the hodgepodge of the liberals. It's a bunch of Episcopalians and people from the ELCA and the usual suspects. All these people seem to do these days, the leftist quote unquote evangelicals or the leftist progressive Christians, if you want to even use that term, they just set up lots and lots and lots and lots of websites and many, many, many statements. And they drown you in this stuff. I think in part, it's kind of a mind game to make you think there are more of them than there really are. But in fact, there are a lot of signatures on this statement that they put out. Uh, I want to play for you a portion of a podcast that was hosted by the Baptist Joint Committee Executive Director, Amanda Tyler. She had on five different people. You're not going to have to listen to all of them. But I want you to listen to her right at the outset explaining what she believes Christian nationalism is. And it kind of goes downhill from there. Listen to cut one. Christian nationalism has been around for a long time. The creation of the myth of the founding of America as a quote-unquote Christian nation dates back at least 200 years to the second generation of founders, as we'll learn in a later episode in this series. The ideology has been persistent. It ebbs and flows, and we've seen earlier high watermarks, particularly in wartime and immediate aftermath. But recently, we've seen some troubling signs that Christian nationalism may be stuck at high tide, if I can continue this water metaphor. We've seen violent and even deadly attacks on houses of worship, perpetrated by extremists who espouse Christian nationalist views. Who? Well, she doesn't say. Who who, who are these people? I mean, there have been a couple of attacks on churches, and... There have been some people who have been, I guess, bad people. Obviously, anybody who would do that is a bad person. But who, who, who are you talking about? She doesn't say. So those are the Christian nationalists, the people who commit violence. Okay, they're like you could count them on one hand, could you not? Maybe two hands. I'm not trying to be, you know, overly dramatic about it. But I mean, there, there, there are a number of people who've done it, but not that many. When you look at the number of Christians in the United States of America, it's not that many people who have committed violence at churches. So that's a pretty small number. Why are you all over this issue of Christian nationalism if it's just a matter of committing violence? Well, she goes on to explain. You're going to love this one. Cut to. But Christian nationalism also reveals itself in less dramatic ways, like a spate of bills sweeping state legislatures around the country. Some of these bills advance a revisionist history about the creation of our country, and others encourage the creation of Bible literacy classes in public schools, something that's unnecessary from a legal perspective, but very difficult to implement in a neutral way. 
Still others mandate the posting of the words in God we trust in various places like the walls of public schools. This initiative is not in response to any one of these incidents, but rather as a way to counter what we view and perceive as a growing threat. Do you see what she just did there? She talks about no-name people who commit violence in the name of Christian nationalism and then says, yeah, but there are more subtle forms of Christian nationalism. You know, those crazy people who believe that you should put in God we trust, which also happens to be the national motto, put that up in public schools. Can you believe it? They're the people who talk about Bible literacy classes. Can you believe these people? This is dangerous. It's a growing threat. Are you kidding me? Right, you got Planned Parenthood in the public schools, teaching kids how to get abortions and providing contraception for little girls and then wanting the parents not even to know about it. You have LGBT curriculum in these public schools, teaching kids that they can switch their sex if they feel like it. Yeah, that's the big problem in public schools is wanting to remind American kids in God we trust. Yeah, that's the threat. Now, think about this for a moment. Think what you have to hold to to be a person who is asserting what she is asserting. It is a dangerous guilt by association technique that is horrible. It is horrible to try to say some no-name people who commit violence are kind of like these people who want Bible literacy classes in schools. Okay, right. It's called an education. And were it not for the foundation of the word of God, we wouldn't have America Now, getting into the nitty gritty about whether or not the United States is a Christian nation, that's a debatable phrase anyway. But it's ridiculous to say that because people want kids to be educated about the foundational document, which really is the Bible, for this nation, that somehow they're a growing threat and it gets worse. It always does. We'll be back. We'll tell you more. So don't go away. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. If you could provide God's word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's word. Everyone wants to read the Bible. But what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, 800 Yes Word, or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an 
insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. We are talking about Christian nationalism. Are you one? It's a growing threat. It's a growing threat. This is what they're saying over at the Baptist Joint Committee. They launched an effort last year called Christians Against Christian Nationalism.org. Doesn't that just strike you as weird? It's a bunch of leftists endorsed by Tony Campolo, endorsed by Jim Wallace, the usual leftists. And what's interesting, I'm going to kind of get ahead of myself a little bit, but in going through all the signatures on this statement that they put out about condemning Christian nationalism, did you know that there are at least 85 people from the Southern Baptist Convention who have signed on to this statement on this ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. I find that really interesting. In fact, three of them that I found were affiliated with the Summit Church, different campuses of the Summit Church. The Summit Church happens to be pastored by who? J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I find that to be an interesting development. So I wanted you to know that at the outside. This is why I think it's important for you to know about this, because there has been this growing wokeness and adherence to CRT, critical race theory and social justice and identity politics and all this nonsense has been gaining ground in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last couple of years. And there are a lot of concerned conservatives within the Southern Baptist Convention who I think need to know about this. Even though this thing came out last year until just this week, I didn't know there were 85 Southern Baptists. There may be more who just didn't identify themselves as Southern Baptists, but you can go on the website yourself and search the document and you'll see what I'm saying. So Amanda Tyler, the executive director of this effort, she's the executive director of the BJC, the Baptist Joint Committee, has already said in this podcast that I've been playing for you that Christian nationalism is on the one hand, crazy people who are Christian nationalists who gun people down at Bible studies, I guess, And at the same time, people who want to have Bible literacy classes in public schools, because those two things are pretty much analogous, right? They're a growing threat. I want to play one more cut from Amanda Tyler so you can hear what else she had to say about Christian nationalism, which is something that's been decried in recent days by people like Beth Moore and Michael Gerson and David French and some of these people, Rod Dreher, who have a lot of influence among evangelicals. Let's listen to what she said. Cut three. As a Baptist Christian, I've been particularly troubled by the way that Christian nationalism distorts Christianity. I see it as really a limitation of my faith, trying to put Christianity into a box labeled American patriotism. But of course, our faith is much bigger than any one country. We follow Jesus, who was executed by the empire for his revolutionary views about love and equality before God. For Christians, our power is found in the power of the love of God as taught by Jesus the Christ, not any earthly power. And we're suspicious when religion gets too cozy with government. Yeah, because the left never gets cozy with government. Oh, wait a minute. Jim Wallace, one of your endorsers, was a faith advisor to Obama. But no, 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 no. When they do it, it's being faithful to the Bible. Well, and they never say it that way. 
They're being, no, no, they're doing it for the common good. They're doing it to love their neighbors. Everything they do is very holy and very righteous, and they never have to look in the mirror and ever look at anything that they're doing wrong and say, wow, I'm really out of line with the word of God, because they never do that. It's just a social justice parade 24-7 with these people, and they're always the hero of the story that they're telling in every single context. It's the conservative Christians who are the big, 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 big problem. Oh, you Christians, don't you know that Jesus was executed for his revolutionary views about love and equality? Yeah, no. Have you ever read a Bible in your life? That is not why Jesus was executed. He was executed because he claimed to be God. And in the larger picture, he was executed because he came to pay the price for sinners by shedding his blood on the cross and atoning for their sin and justifying them before a holy God when he was raised from the dead on the third day. This isn't hard. This really isn't hard. You know, you might want to pay attention if you go to church once a year at Christmas, not that you can do it this year in a lot of places, but... These people can't even get what Jesus did right. So they're going to tell us how to be Christians. Now let's turn. Let's turn now. It's just about to go off the reservation here. Uh, Woman Bishop Elizabeth Eaton of the far left Evangelical Lutheran Church in America weighs in on this. You're going to enjoy this one. This is cut four. I'm Bishop Elizabeth Eaton of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and I'm a Christian against Christian nationalism. I don't know if people have really read and understood the First Amendment, and the first clause in the First Amendment has to do with separating uh, church and state, and they usually think that that means that religion can't speak in the public square. And really, the amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So it was a founder's intent, many of whom had come from countries with a state religion, not to have um, a religion that was identified with the state, and which has now become, uh, in the way I see this raised up, that you're not really a good American or a real citizen unless you subscribe to a particular kind of Christianity, which is, is completely against our own constitution. And for Lutherans, it's against our understanding of our citizenship in the kingdom of uh, heaven, the kingdom of God. We're all citizens. We believe that good government, we would say, is a gift from God. But the United, the United States is not co-equal or co-identified um, with the kingdom of God. Who says it is? Honestly, I'm a Christian patriot to the core. I love my country. And I love being a Christian and I desire to see more and more and more souls saved in the United States of America so people can have their sins forgiven and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that has wonderful implications. I'm being salt and light when I say these things. I am not saying America is the kingdom of God. Nobody is saying that. If anybody is saying that, I've never heard him or her say that. They, see, what, see what they do? They do these caricatures. They sit around and they inform liberals what those evil conservatives are saying, even though they have no examples of anybody saying it. It's just a lie is what it is. And by the way, when you go back to the founding of this country, what they didn't want was to have one denomination as the state church, because that's what they had escaped from. And what happened with the Church of England? They didn't want to have a state church. They didn't say, we don't want one religion. So, you know, they're muddling the waters here, muddying the waters here. Now let's turn to one more cut. This is from the executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Listen to cut five. I'm Paul Baxley, executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and I'm a Christian against Christian nationalism. Most of what I see today that masquerades as Christian nationalism 
it would really be hard to actually describe as Christian. So, for example, any ideology that says that people of one race are superior to people of another race, or that people from one country are more important to God than people from another country, I mean, those kind of ideas just fly in the face of anything you read in Scripture or anything you see in the life of Jesus. Christians believe that God so loved the whole world that God sent his son Jesus. So it's it's not a matter of just being interested in one nation or one race or one ethnicity. God's love is truly global. Gee, thanks. We didn't know that. Nobody believes what you're saying. They believe Christian nationalism. One race is superior to another. The KKK believes that. But outside of that, who believes that? Or one nation is superior. Well, we do believe in American exceptionalism because we recognize the unique place in world history that our nation has had. We're thankful for that. That's why we're fighting to preserve it. And these people are on our case, or I shouldn't say are. I don't know who they're bashing. They're just kind of bashing a straw man. And then you're supposed to figure out by osmosis who the straw man is. Oh, somebody's committing violence. Who was that? Oh, you're just going to have to guess. Okay. Well, that seems like a waste of time. Here's what's interesting to me. They have a handout to which they link on their frequently asked questions portion. How do you define Christian nationalism? This thing really tells the tale. See, you sometimes have to click through a lot of stuff to get to the essence of it. Listen to this. What is Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and should always be distinctively Christian from top to bottom in its self-identity, interpretations of its own history, sacred symbols, cherished values, and public policies, and it aims to keep it that way. But the Christian in Christian nationalism is more about identity than religion. It carries with it assumptions about nativism, white supremacy, authoritarianism, patriarchy, and militarism. Now you're going to love this. How does Christian nationalism show up in politics and policy, they ask? According to multiple academic studies using large nationally representative surveys, Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to approve of authoritarian tactics like demanding people show respect for national symbols and traditions, fear and distrust religious minorities, including Muslims, atheists, and Jewish people, condone police violence toward black Americans, and distrust accounts of racial inequity or inequality in the criminal justice system, believe racial inequality is due to the personal shortcomings of minority groups, report being very uncomfortable with both interracial marriage and transracial adoption, hold anti-immigrant views, fear refugees, oppose scientists and science education in schools, and finally, these crazy, crazy Christian nationalists Many of them believe that men are better suited for all leadership roles while women are better suited to care for children in the home. Okay, so if you believe mom should be a keeper at home, you're a Christian nationalist. And if you think that terrorists should not be let into the United States, you fear refugees. You see how this works? And if you believe in Genesis 1, then you oppose scientists. You just hate them all. You see a scientist and you're like, get away from me. I mean, who who fits this bill? Here's my question. In the final analysis, when Beth Moore or other of these evangelical elites make reference to evangelical Trump supporters as being either Christian nationalists or supporters of it, what do they really mean? Do they mean this? Because if they do, they need to have their feet held to the fire. 
Christian nationalism and this caricature and the non-specificity about who really is guilty of it, it's not okay for us to let these people just slander the body of Christ in this way without defining their terms, especially when you've had 85 Southern Baptists sign on to this statement of Christians against ChristianNationalism.org. Got to run. We'll come back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. If you have ever read through the entire book of Joshua, you'll know about a particular chapter that is especially striking, and that is chapter 7, the account of Achan's sin. Now, what does that account have to do with us? What does it say to us about the seriousness of sin and the importance of repentance? And what does it say about God's grace to us in Jesus Christ? These are all very important questions, and we're going to talk about it today with Matthew Lamaster, who is pastor of Southern Heights Christian Church in Anderson, Indiana, also in editor at Theology Magazine, and his book, which we will be discussing, is called Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. Matthew, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor, and uh, I love your show, and I'm excited to uh, talk about an important topic. Oh, you're so nice. It's my honor to have you here. Thank you so much for doing it, really. You know, I'm glad to see your book, and because uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I think Aiken is kind of an underreported character in Scripture, but such an (laughs) important... Don't you think? I mean, but so important to this topic of sin, and I'm wondering how you decided we we really need to go back and look at Aiken when we're examining the topic. Topic of sin. <laughs> well, uh, that's such a good question, and you are so right. Um, most I'm, most people don't, you know, the average Christian probably doesn't know the story, um, or if they do, they don't really understand it, or they maybe, you know, I talk to people all the time who say they've never even heard a sermon on it. Wow. And uh, there's a, 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 I was preaching through the book of Joshua a number of years ago, and, um, you know, I was preaching through it, and I, uh, you know, when you're preaching, you're looking a couple weeks ahead, ideally. And so I was preaching, and I was thinking, oh, no, chapter 7 is coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to preach that. And um, But I got to it, and, you know, what's what's in my book is largely, um, a lot of it had its genesis in that sermon that I preached. And I had so many people from our church um, that came up to me after that sermon and they just thanked me for it more than they usually do, and they um, they were so grateful for it. And I thought, you know, what a shame that so many people skip over the maybe more difficult or tough passages in Scripture like this one, because it's through that difficulty that you get to the good stuff. Yes. And it's through that, um, it's through the, the, it's by climbing up the mountain that you get the view. And uh, until you're willing to work through those tough passages, you're you're missing out on what God has for you. Yeah. That's kind of a little bit of the, how I got to um, write on this story in particular. Um, you know, but I, I think the doctrines of sin and the biblical teaching on sin is so undertaught today. 
and it's a travesty and um it is um frankly it's just damnable yep. and yep. it's 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 awful it so is that's, that's that's a pressing concern in my mind also behind the book oh absolutely you couldn't be more right about that so without going into joshua 7 and reading every single part of it because i don't want to take too much time away from talking about your book (laughs) let's summarize here because here's Achan. the israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things so they had gotten the spoils of war here Achan had taken some of the booty for himself and hid it in his tent but he was one of the leaders here of the tribe of judah to what extent does that weigh in on the seriousness of his sin? Oh, I, I think it weighs in. Uh, there's so many ways that it weighs in. You know, he if you think of him, he was an example to a lot of the younger people um, in his tribe. You know, they're young, they're young men in my church, and it's my joy to pastor them. And uh, I, one of the things that I try to encourage is the, the older guys to kind of take those younger guys under their wing and kind of work with them. And uh, you, you think of like an older gentleman um, who everything we know about Aiken, he was a, uh, a war hero. He was a family man. He was respected. He was esteemed. And so you think of the, the next generation underneath him that they could easily follow his example into sin. But you also think of his own family um, and how he led them. I, I really believe he led them into destruction led his own tribe into destruction, um, which in turn ha- had an effect on the rest of Israel. So I, I think the fact that he—it wasn't just that he was somebody who sinned, although that in itself is significant, but you're so right um, that it's because he was a, a leader that fell into sin. Yeah. And that, di- that uh, was foreboding for the rest of the nation. Well, and it did not end well for him. I mean, this is the point. He eventually admits that he did what he did, but he ends up getting stoned. And I know anytime stoning is involved, it's very upsetting even for Christians to discuss it because they think that's just not polite. We don't want to go back to those uh, unpleasant passages in the Old Testament. But we have to because this was such an offense unto the Lord that this was the appropriate punishment. Explain that, though, for modern ears to hear, well, he came forward and he admitted that he did it, why was the punishment for Aiken so severe? Yeah, well, it's such a good question. Uh, maybe we should start with what, so what Aiken did was a sin, and um, maybe we should, uh, you know, start just by unpacking what it means to sin. Good. Um, I grew up in, in a really very borderline fundamentalist <laughs> uh, background, and that's probably why I get so grouchy today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but where we uh, we would memorize, you know, the Ten Commandments, and we had catechism, and we, so we'd have to recite the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And so I, I think maybe people who have that background, we tend to think, oh, that's what sin is. It's breaking one of the laws. And it is that. I mean, Aiken... He lied, he stole, he murdered, he was unfaithful to the Lord, he basically committed idolatry. There's all these things that he did do. So it's not that he didn't break the law, because he absolutely did. But it's also that he—it's also—the problem with sin is not what we do to sin. The problem with sin is who we sin against. Yes. And so um, it wasn't just that Achan wronged his brothers, although that would have been serious and egregious. Um, it was that he he wronged the God of Israel, you know, and so sin is cosmic. R.C. Sproul said sin is cosmic treason. Yep, it is shaking your fist at the Creator of all things, 
um, seen and unseen. And so to, uh, for, for Aiken to, for anybody to sin, but especially for, for Aiken, it's not just that he did something wrong, it's who he did something wrong to. Yes. And, and so sin has this, it, it's not done in a vacuum, you know, it's, it takes place between us and God. And because God is infinite, the consequences for our sin is infinite. Right. So that is, that is the, the serious nature behind sin. Um, as, as far as, well, what will, and you said that, I think that's such a question that people have when they come to this passage is, well, he came forward. <laughs> Why did it get let off the hook? Um, I, I, there's a difference between coming forward because you feel uh, your conscience pricked, and there's a difference between coming forward and because you have a heart change, and between coming forward because you're, you know, you've been caught. Right. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, Jenna, I don't know if you have children, but uh, you see this a lot with kids. Right? Oh, yeah. They're, yes. Not, yes. they're not sorry that they, what they did. <laughs> they're sorry that they got caught. Yes. Um, and I think that was the situation. At any point, Aiken could have stepped forward yeah. um, with what he did. Yes. He could have stepped forward before his sin led to other people's death. He could have stepped forward when... After it led to other people's death, he could have stepped forward um, during the day of mourning. He, he could have stepped forward at any point, but he basically waited until the last possible moment. Right. It wasn't until there was. It wasn't until people basically already knew something had happened that he admitted what happened. Yeah. Um, even then, it, it, even then, I think if he would have had heart change, he could have been forgiven. <laughs> but he, there's no there's no indication in the Bible that he was actually repentant. Yeah. Um, and it seems that he was stubborn and resistant until the end. Well, it does. Now, it, it does. You're right yeah, about that. Yeah, no, and I am a mother, so I understand four kids. So I could completely <laughs> understand what you're talking about there. When the fine, I did it. You know, we understand getting caught and being repentant are not necessarily the same things. And, it, you know, different. Two different things. There are two totally different things. And, and this brings us to another important part of this entire discussion, and that is repentance leading us to God's forgiveness. We're going to come back with Matthew LeMaster of Guilt and Grace is his book. You're listening to Janet Mufford today, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, 
they choose life. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. So good to have you with us and great to have with us Matthew Lamaster. He's pastor of Southern Heights Christian Church in Anderson, Indiana, and author of Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken about sin and salvation, taking us back to the book of Joshua. Always important to go back and reread it if you haven't read it recently. This is a very important passage and one, Matthew, which you pointed out, is not often preached upon. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Aiken's sin. This is important. This is a really, really important subject. But on the issue of sin, you have a lot to say when you're going through your different lessons and people can read about it in your book. But one of the first things you say is that sin is anything but simple. You know, we we have this mindset. What I do is just going to be done and then no one will know and hopefully no one will find out. And if somebody does find out, I'm just going to kind of minimize it or dodge or what have you. What do you see in the story of Aiken about the complexity of sin, that it's not simple. It's not just a matter of, I will disobey God and I'll just move on with my life. Oh, that's such a good question, Janet. And thank you again for having me on. Sure. Uh, and I think it's something that we don't recognize enough is how complex and how variegated and how far sin spreads. You know, if you, for example, if you, um, it, one of the reasons it's important for young on, uh, for couples who are engaged to go to premarital counseling, <laughs> is to realize just how deep their sin patterns are. Right. Um, and a good and good premarital counseling, you will they they'll be able to confront some of that in themselves and in the, their spouse. But you can always tell when um, a couple has not gotten the most out of premarital counseling that they could have, because four or five years after they get married, if it takes that long you just see the complete breakdown of their lives as their as their their sin leads them to um into their further into themselves and they feel more lonely than they ever thought they could hmm. well if you dissect that and you say okay well who's at fault in this marriage is it the husband or the wife well i i've yet and i know there are some so i'm not saying it doesn't happen but i've yet to see the situation where it's either or it's typically both in and then you Unveil, you unpack that farther and you start to see patterns of behavior, patterns of sin that go back generations and generations. And yet when we talk about sin, so, that, so there you have parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, spouses, in-laws, the kids, the dogs, yeah. <laughs> not the dogs, but <laughs> you know, all of the, all of that all of those individuals have sin that's getting put into the pot and stewing together. Right. And, and that 
boils over into the lives of everyone who's near. But when we, when we talk about sin, we just talk about it in such simple terms. We do. And we, uh, we don't take the time to unpack it and, and parse it. You know, my, my dad always has a, my, my dad always has a good saying about when um, you, you talk to someone and he says, never trust um, what a divorcee has to say about their spouse or about their ex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of his, his little proverbs um, because they will only see what the other person did wrong, but they'll never see what they did wrong. Sure. And uh, I, I mean, there's so many life situations where you could unpack that, yeah. but I think that that, um, we, we think about sin in such simple terms, but it's not. It's so complex, and we have to take the time to parse it out and figure it out. Oh, for sure. I, you know, and this issue of admitting your sin versus repenting for your sin, we think a lot about David and David, what right. he did, having Uriah killed and committing adultery with Bathsheba and his child died. And, you know, against you only, only you only have I sinned. You know, we, we see this as a marvelous example of true repentance, and it was. But mm-hmm. what, what do we need to talk about more in the church when we look at the lack of preaching on sin, the lack of confession of sin, the lack of really taking sin as seriously as we ought to take it as believers in Jesus Christ? How do we remedy that? I mean, I know it's simple in a sense that we just need to understand we are sinners, even though we are forgiven through Jesus Christ and his shed blood and his resurrection. We understand God's grace in Jesus Christ, but we still need to be cognizant of sin because we, we're continually having to repent, not only to the Lord, but also to other people. How do we get back to that, this this old paths view of sin? Oh, oh such a good question. And you're, you're right, it is kind of an older, an older path, but a, well, a well-trod path, but a, a good one. Um, I, you know, first, I think maybe we should just say the importance of why, why if, it, if, if sin is really what it is, what we said it is, and what the Bible says it is, and if sin is so difficult and complex, what's what's the benefit of even going into detail and figuring this out? And um, the reality is, uh, until you understand just how deep your sin is, and it's deeper than we know, and until you understand that, um, you will never understand salvation. Amen. So until we really understand where we're at fault, um, until we really understand just how guilty we are, then we will never understand what it what it was that God forgave us in Christ. Hmm. That's right. And, and I think we have to start there. It, we're not. I'm not a. I'm not a masochist, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm not like a gloomy Gus, and I I um, I don't just like beating up on people all the time. But the reality is you can't give people good news until they recognize just how bad the situation really is. Yes, right. And so I think people, I think to remedy it, the first step has to be we have to recognize that if we really want to preach the gospel, if we really want to see, uh, here's an old, an old paths word that doesn't get tossed around as much today. If we really want to see revival in our churches um, and in our nation, and we want to see people repent and turn to the Lord if we want to see that for our for our children um, and for our grandchildren. We have to, if we really want to see the gospel bear fruit, we have to talk about sin. 
Because mm-hmm. until we understand just how deep sin is, we never understand just how good salvation is. Right. Oh, amen. Um, that's perfect. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what we learn in Scripture when it talks about the fact that the law was given so we would know what sin was. And it's a school teacher to lead us to Christ. I and mean, It's the basics. Yeah. But boy, do we need to go back to the basics? Because in a lot of contexts, all we're hearing is a lot of self-help drivel. And that can have a, oh, yeah. you know, you, you can have a plan and turn on Dr. Phil for five minutes and you might get something out of it. But that's a far cry from the kind of biblical preaching that we need to hear every week when we go to church, whether it's, you know, whether it's in Old Testament preaching and talking about uh, someone like Achan or whether it's talking about the woman caught in adultery. We have to really wrestle with this, that we are saved by grace. And this brings us to the important point that you cover in the book, which is grace is available every step of the way. And I love what you say. This is the way you put it in your book. You said, our God is not just a God who pardons sinners. He's a God who pursues sinners. Can you talk about that just for a minute or two? Because I just, I can't get over Jesus. I really can't. And every every time I get a good reminder like that, I'm so thankful. Well, well, thank you. And I, I appreciate that. I, even talking about, all that God has done for me kind of gives me gives me goosebumps. Um, you know, I one of the things that's dev, the, the most devastating thing to me about Aiken's story. Um, it, it's not just what he did. It's not that he didn't come forward. It's not that his confession was insincere. Although all all of that is just awful, and all the consequences that his sin had on his family and on his friends and on his country. Um, it's that I, I genuinely believe that even before Aiken was, um, had done this, that God had given specific instructions for someone who broke the law um, like he did. He gave very specific instructions in the Old Testament on how to deal with that. And the, the most tragic thing about that is that Aiken didn't want it. There was salvation, there was grace, there was forgiveness there. And Achan didn't want it. Um, and what God was doing by bringing Achan's sin out into the open was trying to offer that to him, and Achan turned his back on it. Mm. And I, I can't, you know, I, I can't help but think probably there are people who, who are listening to the show right now who um, maybe they, they've been caught by their spouse or um, their some patterns of behavior in their own lives are coming out that they didn't even think about, or um, their they, their dirty dealings at work, or, or something has come out about them. That's God's grace. That's God showing us um, our need for salvation. Yeah. And the reality is, we're meant to learn from Aiken's example, not that we repeat what he did, but so that we do the thing that he did. It. So um, we yeah. not that. So we take salvation that he wouldn't take. And that's my hope. Yes. Um, for anyone who's listening to this or anyone who reads this book. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. But again, the name of the book is Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation by Pastor Matthew Lemaster. It was so great to have you here, Matthew. Great book. And it was just wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Janet. Such a privilege. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today, and we will see you next time.